Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting entrepreneur because the story that, that he's going to be sharing is a story that is full of ups, full of downs, and full of success too because the company that right now he's building is definitely a rocket ship. So I don't want to make you all wait any longer. So let's say, let's actually welcome our guest today, Matthew Stout. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks for having me today. Look forward to the conversation. So, Matthew, originally born in Indiana, so how was life growing up? As you would expect, growing up in Indiana in the, in the 70s, where uh, you didn't get a lot of exposure. But uh, I was blessed to have a dad that uh, was a patent lawyer for GE and traveled the world. And so he would come back from travels over to Japan and China and different parts of Europe and regale me with these amazing stories of different worlds and different places and different people. And uh, really inspired me to want to go and myself travel the world. So uh, when my dad passed away a while ago, I made a promise that I was going to go try to visit every country in the world before I die. Wow. And where are you at on the list? Uh, I have 105 countries. I use the UN as my uh, marker for it. But I got to tell you, COVID kind of sucked because it kind of put a, a damper on being able to get out there and travel to the different countries. And how do you think that traveling and experiencing different cultures has perhaps shaped uh, and, and changed even uh, the approach and your worldview towards addressing problems as an entrepreneur? Well, I'll tell you, first and foremost, it, it starts with uh, the power of empathy. Uh, you know, when I go back to when, when I was growing up, and I don't know that my dad ever would have used these words or I would have thought of these words, but when you'd come back and you'd tell me about these places he's been, he really instilled in me this idea that uh, when you meet people, someone from whatever their walk of life is, whatever their politics are, whatever their lot in life is, you meet them where they are. No preconceived notions, no no judgments against them. Just get to know them and, and find the things that connect you. And you know, he, he died when I was twenty, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Talk about the impact that, that had on my life, but uh, he. Uh, when I started to go and travel the world myself, listen, man, I've been to some of the wealthiest countries in the world. I've been to some of the poorest countries in the world. I've met some of the wealthiest people, some of the poorest people. But in every instance, I always try to find those things that connect us and, and bind us together. 
And, you know, really what my dad was teaching me was the power of empathy to understand people, to, you know, walk in and, and meet them without those preconceived notions, just to understand who they are, what motivates them, what drives them. And, uh, and I think it's important as a leader, when you're building out your team, you know, one of our, we have three core values that every single person in our company knows and recite them on command. It's empathy, uh, uh, evidence-based and entrepreneurial. And the empathy one is the core of what we do. It's actually the world of VR. It happens to be the core of VR as well. It's a VR is an empathy machine, but it really can help you, uh, try to, you know, from a partnership perspective, be empathetic to understand what your partner's needs are. Uh, from a patient perspective, obviously, you've got to be incredibly empathetic to understand their needs. And so it, it just helped us. And I love that because I, I find that as human beings, you know, we tend to label people very quickly and that pollutes our, our judgment. Listen, yeah. I, the thing that what breaks my heart right now in America is this level of divisiveness that we have and the tribalism that exists. And uh, it's we, we, we're lacking empathy. We're lacking the, the, the capacity to take the time to hear someone else and hear where they're from and find those things that unite us and not divide us. Now, in your case, uh, Matthew, I mean, you got into math. I mean, what, what, really, the, what really made you, you know, go into the math and, and social sciences, you know, type of uh, spectrum? Well, I've, I've always been driven uh, or interested in, in math and solving problems and, and whatnot. Uh, my, uh, it's funny. I had this I heard this idea of going and becoming a lawyer. Now, Alejandro, I know you're a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer. He was a patent okay. lawyer. And I remember doing a summer session at a law firm. And I went back the next summer and did a session at the law firm. And they were working on the exact same cases. And I was pulling more files for the exact same things. And I'm like, man, I have zero interest in becoming a lawyer. And then when I was, uh, I was fortunate in uh, college to get an internship down in D.C. And at some point, I'd harbored ideas of going off to become a senator. And I'd done an internship with Senator Dan Coates out of Indiana. And I was talking to him about my pathway and how I had interest in politics and whatnot. And he said, uh, he gave me a great piece of advice. I said, Matthew, there are way too many lawyers on Capitol Hill. What we need is more business professionals down here, people who actually understand how the real world works uh, and who can understand when we actually pass legislation, it has an impact on businesses and on people's lives. And if you don't have an understanding of how to run a business and how to how it you know how to how to build businesses, then you're never going to understand how to pass legislation that can actually have a positive impact. And that really resonated with me. And uh, and so when I came back and you know, I was in this honors program at Northwestern, and uh, again I didn't know what where I was going to go with it. All I knew I wasn't going to become a lawyer. And so, uh, but everybody in my program ended up going into investment banking or consulting. And between had opportunities in both, but ended up doing investment banking, which was just a fantastic experience and really helped me understand, you know, how you build, break down a business, see a wide variety of different businesses that helped shape, you know, my the future for when I started getting into it myself. And you did that for quite a while. I mean, close to six years. Well, I was in uh, investment banking for three years, and then I did uh, took a, took a, a break off to become an uh, pretty much an illegal immigrant farm picker over in Australia, uh, and then came back and did private equity. There you go. And uh, was, because uh, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. Ever since I was a little kid, I was building 
little businesses that probably got me into more trouble than it was worth. But the uh, I always wanted to get there. And so investment banking was the first step. It helped me understand how do you build financial models and think about the cash flows and all the you know the core elements of how it works and see a variety of industries. And then private equity got me one step closer and we were doing a roll up at the trade show business. And so I got to work with a really smart, sharp CEO. Uh, and then when I went back to B school, though, it was purely to come back out with uh, yeah, to, to finally get into that entrepreneurial side of the world. Tell us about getting into the entrepreneurial journey. So about you, shock, which was a, obviously a shocking, you know, sequence of experiences for you as well. Well, yeah, so U-Shock was, that was my first venture uh, that I did. When, when I went to business school, again, I went to Kellogg and I'd had a strong financial background. I wanted to get more of a marketing background to round out my skill set. Uh, came out, did a, uh, and when I was at school, I was always focused on doing us doing going the startup route. And so uh, I met a good friend of mine that I developed there, and he and I came out together, created U-Shock. The original idea of it was a virtual hard drive, basically. Uh, back then, you we didn't have ubiquity of of uh, broadband everywhere, but you did have that at universities, and so we thought that was a good uh, starting point. And you know, if you look ahead, and we would have been prescient enough. We always believed that the value was that virtual hard drive and, and probably we were the predecessor to what, you know, is Dropbox today. Uh, but we just went a different direction and became more of a marketing engine and kind of a city search for universities. And, you know, we had all these projections about how big we we're going to get and everything. And, and we were blown up and hitting our numbers, but we happened to be doing it at a time when, uh, the markets weren't necessarily friendly. This was in 99, 2000. So we were just at the top of the dot com and, and then we became part of the dot bomb. And, you know, we, blew, we grew up, built it up and then blew it up. Uh, but we had some good learnings in, in there and uh, came out of that that, you know, I think what, what, make, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And uh, sometimes you got to have some of these, uh, these downs that you really can learn from that can uh, drive you forward. So. Now, in this case, I mean, eh, there's a lot of people that are talking that we're heading potentially into another downturn. And I think that when you've lived through it, 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 it gives you a lot of perspective. So how would you plan differently now, you know, ahead of, of another downturn? So I, the last that downturn I lived through was in 08, when you had the big financial crisis. And we had done a, uh, we had just done an acquisition. We were just getting ready to go out to, to market to raise capital. And Lehman Brothers folds, and I don't think we had. You know, I was, a, I was a much younger leader at that point in time, not nearly as experienced as I am now, and uh, we just, we just didn't we didn't move nearly quickly enough to to, uh, to recognize what the the depths of the frozen markets were going to have in the, in the world at that time, and so we went through some pretty lean years and do had a lot of tough experiences. Um, but again, you, you learn from all of these experiences. So now fast forward and, and I'll give you the example of COVID. So when COVID hit, we literally had just started to build out a, uh, a sales team for our current business going into hospitals. And uh, COVID hits in March, in the beginning of March, literally everything freezes up in the world of healthcare. Uh, you can't get access into hospitals any longer. All of our clinical trials were put on hold. And, uh, and again, we were about ready to go raise some capital. And so having learned all of the, the ups and downs from what we did before in the world of uh, Outcast, my last company, we, we said, listen, we, we don't know how deep this is going to be. We don't know how bad this is going to be. This could only be a month or it could be 
you know, now look at this, we're still almost two years into this thing. And, uh, and so we said, we're, we've got to measure twice, cut once, and we've got to cut deep so that we can ride out this storm for, and we are the, the mark we set for ourselves was at least 12 months. And so we had to make some pretty, pretty de- difficult cuts for the team. We got out of the office. We did everything we could to cut our burn down. But we could, with a straight face, say to every single employee that we kept that you have a job for the next 12 months, no matter what happens. doesn't matter how bad it gets out there. You have a job here. And, uh, and I think the fact that we acted quickly, we responded to the facts that we had at the, in that moment as fast as we did, uh, I think says a lot about the leadership that we had at the, at the company. It's one of our, our proudest moments that we were so decisive in that. And then we did some things internal and we said, there's a lot of things we can't control. We can't control when these chemical trials are going to start back up. We can't control when, you know, hospitals are going to open back up. So let's figure out, let's only focus on those things that are directly within our control. And let's uh, really lean into that. And that was a transformative moment for us. So we ended up doing, uh, submitting to the FDA for this thing called breakthrough device designation. We got that. We ended up running a decentralized chemical trial that wasn't uh, dependent on actually having a hospital or, or a practitioner engaged. And that was, we got phenomenal results that led to us getting, uh, ultimately FDA approval. And so all these things that we suddenly took completely back into our control led to the, 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 the strong success that we're seeing today in, in the business that we're building. And so when I think about this potential recession that's coming up here, I always, you know, want to focus on Let's make sure we're only spending on those things that are going to add direct value to what we're trying to create here. And two, if you're creating something that is addressing a real, true, unmet need in the marketplace, then, and especially healthcare is something that, you know, doesn't get as impacted. It's a little bit more recession resistant than a lot of the other industries. Uh, but if you're, if you're creating something that creates true value, there's always going to be room and an opportunity for you. You just got to you know, make sure you don't get over your skis and, and start overspending. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
Now, right before, I mean, obviously with Ushok, as, as we were alluding to, the outcome was not the, the desired one just because, you know, the, the market conditions. And then after this, you went a little bit into corporate America or in an entrepreneur in residence program. But what do you think led you to, and as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. But after having, you know, kind of like a, a failed attempt, right, at, at getting yep. your desired outcome, what, what do you think helped you to regain your confidence to go at it again? Yeah. So I got to tell you, I, I was at McDonald's Corp uh, as an entrepreneur residence there. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a, a safe harbor, I guess, for me, right? Because I had gone from this from this one uh, business where you know, you're calling everybody up and you're lucky if you have people calling you back to something you have McDonald's and anyone you call is going to call you back right away. Uh, and so that was, it was good from that perspective. But again, you know, you're working in a big, large organization, and uh, you know, as as much as entrepreneurs, we like to think that we were. You still have the mothership that's guiding things, and we went through some turmoil from a, a senior leadership perspective. Uh, as one of our, you know, one of the CEOs got fired when I first came in, and then we had another guy who, had, Charlie Bell, who unfortunately got diagnosed with colon cancer and passed away about a year and a half later. Um, but through all of that. Uh, I, I, you know, it was, it was good to have that safe harbor, but I was quite frankly, there was, it was a girl I was dating at the time. We're not dating. I'd gone on a couple of dates with her and she pulled up an, an old photo of me and she looked at it and she said, you know, Matthew, I, I, I look at you now and I look at this photo of you and it looks like you, you, that spark you had is no longer there. What happened? And I started to do a little bit of self-reflection and realized that, you know, I really had sort of beaten myself up because the, that failure of Shock was the first time I had not succeeded at something in my life and it took a toll. But that just that one comment by this one random person really woke me up and said, what am I doing here? You know, this is not where, where my heart is. This is not where my desire is. I want to get out and do something. So we, I had been working on something inside McDonald's um, and then realized I had an opportunity to go do it on a broader basis outside of the four walls of McDonald's. And so I ended up quitting and moved to LA and, started up what ultimately became Outcast, uh, uh, advertising at a gas station. So basically, uh, on, in, on this note, you know, Outcast was a very successful, um, you know, outcome. You know, the, the first time that you really went through the a full cycle uh, as an entrepreneur, really. Uh, but I know that there you had to deal, too, with the ups and downs of fundraising. So how do you deal, you know, with, with fundraising taking longer? Uh, perhaps, you know, like... Uh, being at a point where, you know, you doubt whether or not you're going to make it and be able to make payroll. So how do you keep going when the going gets tough? Uh, so th again, I think each person has their own pathway and how they deal with certain things. For me, I've, I've always been a big believer in the power of team and in the power of partnership. And so, you know, whenever I've gone out and started a business, I've always had a, a really strong partner. Because there are going to be the days that you're going to have self-doubt. There are going to be the days that your partner has self-doubt. And, uh, and so you're there sort of each other to, to bolster each other and, and to ride out the storms that you're inevitably going to face. And then the second one is uh, also just, the, I think, it's the power of culture in an organization. Um, so I'll do a very quick story with, uh, with Outcast. Uh, we'd gone through a, a challenge in the financing world where we literally, we, we got to the point where we couldn't make payroll. And it was one of the toughest days of my life to have to do a call 
with the entire company and tell them that uh, I, I, you're not going to get paid today and I can't tell you when you're going to get paid and I can't ask you to come back tomorrow to, to work and I can't ask you to come back until I can actually get you paid, right? But I said, you know, the leadership team here will be here tomorrow and the next day and the next day and every single day until we actually get this taken care of. And uh, the, um, you know, we, every, we didn't lose a single person. Every single person in the organization showed up every single day until we were able to get that cleared. And then talk about uh, having to have the, the self-confidence, you know, at some point just to figure out how you, how you get people paid by hook or by crook. You know, we ended up not paying uh, our uh, uh, payroll taxes and a few other things just so we could get all the money that we could into the hands of the employees. And that put a personal liability on my neck that was well over a million bucks that I certainly couldn't afford to ever have to pay off. But I had to have this undying belief that we had a real asset. We had something that actually was creating value. And so uh, despite the, the personal risk that, that I took on, um, it, it, you have to have this fortitude that says, I believe it's going to happen. And then you got to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And, you know, from that low point, we turned around and about nine to 12 months later, ended up selling to Gilbarco, one of the, the world's largest gas pump manufacturer, and ended up having a good return for investors. So it was, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see when you go through these things and, and how you test yourself to be able to come out on the other side. Now, and one last thing I'll say is, you know, when I talk, what we were doing before at Outcast, right, is advertising at a gas pump. There is zero mission in advertising at a gas pump. In fact, it might even be an anti-mission uh, when you talk to some people and they, they complain about it. So we had to make the mission about each other. We had to make it about the person to your left and the person to your right. We were Outcast doing something pioneering, something hadn't been done before. And it was an amazing experience to learn how to really build an a, a powerful culture. Uh, and now I'm at a place with Applied VR where we have an amazing mission. And I got to take all those great learnings from how you build culture and apply them to where I have a really powerful mission. And it's just been, it's been an amazing ride so far. So then let's talk about Applied VR, uh, your, your latest baby. So let's talk about Applied VR and, and for the people that are listening to really get it, what is the business model of Applied VR? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so we are uh, creating this new entire category of therapeutics. It's called we call it immersive therapeutics. It's the world of VR and down the road probably the AR uh, that can actually have a real therapeutic impact on people. And it's based on 30 years of science and, and evidence that demonstrates the power that of a pixel over a molecule. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But uh, what we're going after is the world of chronic pain, and we're using VR. And the content, the program that we created to actually help chronic pain sufferers uh, uh, deal with their pain and uh, learn how to actually modulate their pain so that they can lead a better quality of life and while they bring down the pain that they feel. It's a doctor-prescribed, payer-reimbursed model. So we went through the FDA, first and only uh, VR uh, hardware-software combo uh, platform to get approved by the, v by the FDA. I mean, that happened back in November. And so now we're in the process of, uh, you know, optimizing it, getting ready to do some pilot tests with uh, doctors in a couple different regions and then building the body of evidence that you got to have to be able to get the payers on board to, to, to do the reimbursement. So. 
And and to this to this end, how much capital have you guys say raised today? We've raised uh, seventy million to date. We did our Series B toward the end of last year, right before we got uh, before we got FDA approval. And uh, we have some great investors uh, on our stack. Uh, really happy to, to. It's amazing to see that when you get quality investors in, how it can really help with the business. Uh, our lead investors were Jazz Ventures, F Prime. Uh, SVB Ventures, and then Sway, who's been a long-time investor in us. And you were talking about the importance of uh, empathy, and you know how you are definitely applying that, you know, across the across the board when it comes to culture. I find that also is important to bring investors because they're going to be ultimately part of the board too, and they're going to help with the strategy that management executes. But to have them aligned too with the values of the business. Yes. So how did you go about? making sure that empathy was also present in those investors where typically, you know, there is more entitlement, you know, with, with these folks, <laughs> right? So how do you go yeah. about that? Well, it's, uh, well, listen, I, I think sometimes depending upon what stage of the company you are, you're going to have to be less picky than, than more picky. Uh, right. But we were fortunate in the, and I listen, I've dealt with, with all different types of investors, some that have been very helpful and some that have been actually, you know, somewhat destructive. Uh, quite frankly, uh, but uh, in this, you know, given where we were, and so again, going back to the experiences that I've had in the past, we uh, we start off with the quote, no asshole policy, right. right? So there's just time is too short, and what I'm doing right now is um, just not worth uh, uh, the energy to to deal with really cantankerous investors. And so when we go out, it's it, you know, always want to get to understand who the investors are. Uh, on a personal level and look at uh, trying to build a relationship before you, you end up you know, going into a long-term marriage with them. And so it's it's really about just taking the time to have the conversations, to talk to other uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs that they've worked with to understand what that is. And just as they're doing diligence on you, you have to do diligence on them. You got to take the time to do it, to, to get it right. And when it comes to due diligence, doing due diligence to investors, I mean, any pointers that perhaps you can share on how you typically go about it or, or anything that you can share for perhaps the, the first-time founders that are thinking about going out and raising money on how they can really filter uh, for the right investors that have the right type of reasons? Uh, I think the number one thing you can do is find uh, other companies or CEOs of other companies that have actually dealt directly with that. Um, you know, it's just like if you're, you're, when you're hiring employees, you're going to have a much higher success rate of, of hiring someone that came from a reference than someone that you just sort of meet out of the blue. And yeah, you can, you, you, you can do a great job vetting them all you want, but it's still going to make a mistake or two. Uh, but when you get those referrals in of people that you trust, uh, it, you have a much higher chance. And so that to me, that's the number one thing is, you know, really check your network and see who you're connected to. Or when you're looking at, uh, when you finally are talking to a couple of investors, make sure that you get connected to not only the people they put you in front of, but also try to do a little bit of networking and, and, and network into ones that they didn't put you in touch with so that you can make sure you're not just getting sort of a, a filthy story. And that's, that's fantastic uh, advice there. Now, if I was to ask you, you know, now, uh, let's say if you were to go to sleep tonight, and wake up in a world five years later. Imagine tremendous news. You haven't slept like this in your life. And you wake up in a world where the vision of applied is fully realized. What does that world look like? 
so if you let me sleep until about eight years or nine years, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what my vision is. So we have a pretty big, pretty big vision here. So we're, we're creating this whole new category of immersive therapeutics. And as I, I talk to my team about this all the time, you know, when you're thinking about um, certain businesses, you're going to go and you're just simply making a better e-commerce platform or something else. Um, you've got to be a, a good executor and leader within what you're doing. But what we're doing, creating this entire new category, we have to be next level leaders. It means that we've got to be able to truly understand how to build an industry around us, build coalitions. Um, you know, at first you think about in healthcare, you think about payers, patients, and providers. But we also have to think about policy. And two years ago, if you and I were having this conversation, I would never have thought that I'd be talking to you about that we're actually trying to change policy on the federal level and the state level in America. And in fact, we actually have a bill that we got submitted into the California legislature that's going to help support bringing reimbursement for FDA-approved non-pharmacological alternatives to help address this opioid epidemic. So, uh, and, and in the world of immersive therapeutics, right, as opposed to digital therapeutics, which is an app on a phone, a lot, most people don't have VR headsets. And so ultimately for us to get successful is we need to be able to get our hardware software out into the homes of everybody in America and ultimately around the world. And so our vision here is to be a VR pharmacy that dispenses this next generation therapeutic wherever the patient is, whether it be at their home, in the clinic, or in the hospital. And so when I wake up, eight years from now, you'll have a headset in your home, your parents will have a headset in their home, uh, your friends will have a headset in their home, and they'll be accessing it from, a, think of it as a, a VR, a CVS for VR, where we're dispensing a wide variety of therapeutics uh, that, are, that can uh, address a wide range of uh, indications, such as uh, chronic low back pain, which was our first indication to endometriosis, to total MSK, to fibromyalgia, to schizophrenia, to bipolar, to you know a wide variety of disease conditions. And we're the engine that's powering it all. And at that point, you know, immersive therapeutics is a, truly a part of standard of care in healthcare in America and globally. I love it. Now, if I was to put you into a time machine, Matthew, and I bring you back in time, and I give you the chance to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Matthew that was coming out of the MBA program at, uh, at Kellogg. And uh, you're able to give that younger Matthew one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? That is a great question, my friend. I think what I, sorry, there's the piece of advice that I would give, be willing to say no to things. When you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, and sometimes as you're, you get a little bit scared, you don't, you're not, you know, the funding may not be coming in as fast as you want, or whatever the challenge is, and you start to do a bunch of different things, and you start to test a bunch of different things, and you get caught chasing bright, shiny objects in different areas that sound interesting in the moment, but it doesn't keep you true to your north star. So you've got to have a very clear vision of what it is that you want to build, and then you got to be maniacally focused on making sure that you don't get distracted away from what that North vision, that, that North star vision that you have is. So be willing to say no to things. I love it. Matthew, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to get in touch and say hi? 
The uh, best way is always my email address. I'd love to say that I'm big on social media, but that's try to stay off that as much as I can. Uh, so it's Matthew at AppliedVR.io. Amazing. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. I love the work that you're doing. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.